chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 1 through 8. We'll be kind of sticking more or less to verses 1 through 3 once again this morning. And, and again, to just kind of caveat, this, this is kind of the work of getting into the text of Revelation. There's so much stuff surrounding uh, the book of Revelation that we need to go through the due process of just making sure the foundation is set so that we're not twisting up Revelation in ways that God hasn't intended. So once again, this morning is going to be more informational, heavy than uh, application. Uh, but nonetheless, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one. That's an incredible promise right there. <laughs> Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The Apostle John to the seven churches that are in Asia, he writes, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Take hope in that phrase during this season. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. Let's pray. We'll dive into it. God, thank you for your word. Spirit of God, thank you that you attend this word. That yes, we have kind of black and white pages before us. But Holy Spirit, thank you that even as this text says, it's a revelation. It's a revealing of who you are. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that you would illuminate the text as you love to do. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the benefit of this text, to open our eyes afresh to the person and work of Jesus Christ, open our eyes to the ways in which our hearts and lives need to be more and more brought into uh, the likeness of Christ. So Holy Spirit, you promised the blessing of the text. And so even as we look forward to the next so many weeks of being in Revelation, would you bring the benefit of that blessing? Would we know it? Would we see it? Would we apprehend it? So God, make it, make it so that this is not just information, but may it be that it's truth and that it's truth that benefits us. So God, we ask you to work. And Lord, even for the prayer requests that came in this morning, uh, we do ask for your intervention, your kind hand at work. God, thank you, even as Tim's testimony states, yeah, there are 
high peaks and very low valleys. And yet, your love, your counsel, even as Psalm 33, remains steadfast. You are near to us, you are with us, and your purposes will unfold quickly. So that we can see, yes, you have been faithful through and through. Thank you, Yahweh. What a God you are. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we began with the fact that there is plenty of historical baggage that surrounds the book of Revelation. Remember, we went through a handful of scenarios from the early century as well as from kind of, kind of our contemporary time where the book of Revelation has created plenty of predictions by God's people, as well as the book of Revelation has been perverted in many different ways. In other words, it's been used for all the ways in which it wasn't intended to be used. Right? So even within our more contemporary uh, time, you have Harold Camping, who's utilizing the book of Revelation to all right, figure out when Jesus is going to actually um, return. Or in a more extreme situation, you have, if you remember, the situation in Waco, Texas. David Koresh, right? The Branch Davidians. And what's happening there? But he's utilizing the book of Revelation to say, hey, I'm the answer to the problem of the world. In other words, it's not just predictions like the Herald Campings that have made a mess of the book of Revelation, but it's also these perverted twisting the book of Revelation for what we then saw was a grave and terrible end. Um, so, it behooves us. It, it, it puts the burden on us that we need to come to this book being aware of all the baggage that's there, but coming to it rightly because the promise that Jesus puts before us in those first few verses is there's blessing here, right? Oftentimes it's been with all the junk, it's either, you know, we, we, we fall into conspiracy mode or it's a hands-off approach, and so we, we don't want to get even near that particular book. Why? Because it's filled with all kinds of confusion. But God is saying there's blessing here, there's blessing. And so, in order to rightly benefit from the book, we have to make sure we're rightly reading the book. And so, last week we began with seven principles for rightly reading the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to review those very quickly. Uh, we saw that first that the revelation is meant to be understood. In other words, it's not this code to crack. In other words, it's revelation. It's a revealing that God intends to pull back the curtain, so to speak, to shine the light just on who Jesus is and just what God is intending to do throughout the final age in history. And so we saw this is something that God intends for his people to understand, but we also saw that then revelation is meant to be understood through symbolism. Right? The Bible is a library of genres. It's it's filled with different styles of communication. So if you get the style of communication wrong, you're going to get the reading wrong. So we saw that there's plenty of symbolism in the book of Revelation, right? And, and so it's a particular style of communication that John is employing. It's a genre that he is employing. And if we get the style of his writing wrong, we'll get the reading of the book of Revelation 
wrong. So we have to understand that this is apocalyptic literature, which doesn't have to do necessarily with end times, doomsday kind of stuff. <clears throat> it's actually something in which it's, it's a genre, not having to do with ne necessarily timelines. And so then finally, we recognize that the way that we are, in, are to interpret these symbols from the book of Revelation is in light of scripture itself. We are not to impose, if you remember, our context on the text. So the big, uh, you know, giant locusts of Revelation 9 are not Black Hawk helicopters, right? We're not taking our context and imposing it upon the symbols of the book of Revelation. Rather, what scripture then tells us to do is to go back through uh, the book of the Bible to see where these images have come about and what meaning they carry throughout the book of Revelation. And so instead of imposing our context upon the text, we actually want to go back through the hyperlinks of Revelation, the symbols of Revelation. They're going to hyperlink us back to the Old Testament so that we begin to understand what the symbols actually mean. And this, just so you know, as I've studied it, this is an incredible uh, aspect of the book of Revelation. Revelation has 404 verses in it. It alludes to or hyperlinks us to 550 different Old Testament texts. Just think about that for a second. 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 550 allusions to Old Testament texts. And that happens arguably upwards of a thousand different times within the book of Revelation. In other words, what, the, what John's telling us is look back through Scripture, look back through Scripture, consider all the symbolism, consider what's happened throughout the storyline of, of the Bible so that you begin to understand the significance of the book of Revelation. So what the, what the book of Revelation is going to do is actually help us understand the rest of the Bible. Right? It's going to be something which, again and again, we're going to go back to the Old Testament to see exactly what John is talking about. It's, it's the genius of the book of Revelation. It's tying all the threads of the Bible together in this beautiful culmination. It's, it's a piece of, of, of art, uh, ultimately, when it comes down to it. It's a literary masterpiece. All right, so those were the first three points. You ready, Jode, for number four? Yeah, 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 we're skipping ahead. All right. My goodness, it's one of those mornings, you know, it seems like every little detail, you know. Is... All right. Number four, the fourth principle for rightly reading the book of Revelation is this. Um, and this is going to be more informational, but the book of Revelation is not only apocalyptic. Right? It's not just about all the symbolism and that kind of stuff and how it's to be interpreted. While Revelation is primarily apocalyptic, it's not completely so. In other words, you, if you would enter into the library of the Bible, right, the 66 books that are there, the book of Revelation would be in the apocalyptic section. That's exactly where the genre is, right? But the book of Revelation is more than that, it's a letter on one hand written from John, as we see in verse 2. He's to bear witness to these things, but he's to bear witness to these seven churches in verse 4. And so there's an author and there's an audience. But then it's also referred to as a prophecy. So it's a letter and a prophecy in apocalyptic form, right? 
And why is this necessary to realize? Well, it shapes how you are to read this apocalyptic literature, showing us that it is relevant for the church both then and now. So let me just explain that. For instance, as a letter, it's written by John to these churches, and it intentionally states that all of this imagery actually describes, verse 1, the things that must soon take place. In other words, as John is writing this letter to the churches, these are matters that must be relevant to them. They are things that must soon take place. The, la the letter had immediate purpose and relevance for its readers. Now, this is where we're going to, I need you to follow me. I know it's a difficult morning for, for like processing all this stuff. But remember the book of Revelation, it's going to regularly point us back to the Old Testament, and specifically it's going to point us back to the book of Daniel. It's another apocalyptic book. And, and it's not to mistake, the, the one point here is that at the end of Daniel, an angel instructs Daniel specifically to shut up this word and to seal it until the time of the end. What was the angel saying? He, the angel was saying, this is for a future time, right? They were to await the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. The angel is telling Daniel, hey, with all the imagery, with all the apocalyptic stuff that I've just given you, seal it up because it's a future event to take place. Do you know what happens at the end of the book of Revelation? An angel says to John, right, don't seal up this word. Don't shut it up. Why? Because the time is near. It's exactly what chapter 1, verse 3 states. The time is near for these matters. And so the fact that John is writing this letter to the seven churches is for the fact to recognize that the stuff within the book of Revelation was relevant to them there and in that time. It's incredibly significant. The practical implication is this. If we are going to really understand what the revelation means, we have to understand what the revelation meant to them originally, right? And we come to find that what's in the book of Revelation was relevant to them then and there. Now notice, it's not only a letter with benefit to those original readers, but it's prophecy. Prophecy or apocalyptic prophecy in this, in this case speaks of, yes, future events and future experiences. It's also uniquely intended to challenge the church, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But the point is this. As a letter, it was intended for the original readers, but as prophecy, it's intended for the church throughout generations. So this apocalypse is therefore a revealing of heaven's perspective on the church's experience both then and now. It's a letter and it's prophecy. And it has relevance for then as well as now. And if it has relevance for then as well as now, guess what it has for us even now? Benefit. It has blessing. In other words, the Spirit is eager to bring blessing to the church through the reading, through the keeping of this particular text. When it comes to the fact that the Revelation is a letter and it's a prophecy, 
Oh, folks, this shows us that this is beneficial to the church both then and now. It's to be a benefit for the church throughout all the generations. And if you take the testimony that, that Tim just shared with us, nonetheless, it, it demonstrates, yeah, this is who our God is. He's intentionally blessing. He's intentionally invading, so to speak, generation by generation by generation, the church and seeking by way of his word to bless the church. Oh, man, there's so much to say here at this point. I'm trying to pick and choose at this point because I know we're going to probably go over a little bit. This is one of the reasons since this book is relevant to the church both then and now, it's one of the reasons why I begin to recognize that, you know, the three cycles of seven judgments throughout the book of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I know we can get confused about all of that stuff, but even those particular things, I, I, I begin to see, to see as just a, a recapitulation, just Another, another description of what is taking place throughout the generations of the church, right? So it's not to be necessarily this chronology, so to speak, but it's to see this is what the church throughout the generations is generally going to experience as the seals, the first kind of section of God's judgment unfolds by the lamb undoing the scroll. We, we begin to see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all right? You know, oh, so interesting, you know, what is that all about? It's not so crazy when it comes down to it. Those four horsemen represent this, that the church is going to face political unrest, civil unrest, economic unrest, and natural unrest. Does that sound familiar today? <laughs> I mean, political unrest? I mean, good grief. Yeah, we're feeling all of that stuff, and there's fear within our hearts, right? Like, what is, you know, November 3rd and following going to look like for us? What is that going to be like? Civil unrest, the racial issues of our nation are massive, right? Economic unrest, right? We're, we're wondering, how, okay, how's, how, how's, you know, tied into the political stuff and as well as the civil unrest, as well as the natural unrest, which of, of a pandemic, right? We're, we're wondering, okay, economically, where are we going to stand in the next so many months? And what the book of Revelation does is say, hey, church, wake up to the fact that this is going to be a normal experience for you throughout the generations. But know this, there is a king who stands over it all. Huh. Like Jesus has this goofy political scene that we're in right now. He's got it. Right. It will not be Trump or Biden who saves us. It won't be. It's Jesus. And the book of Revelation tells us, hey, you're going to experience all of this throughout the general, both then and now, as it was a, a letter written to that original audience, but as it's supposed to impact us even here and now, we are to see that Jesus reigns overall, and there will be difficult experiences here on this earth. But heaven's perspective, the apocalypse, the opening of the curtain for us to actually see heaven's perspective on our earthly experience is this, that Jesus rules and reigns over all. Take hope, church. Right? Now, the fifth principle then is this, is that revelation, the revelation is meant to be a benefit to the church under attack. 
We've noted the promise of the blessing in verse 3, where it states, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of the prophecy. But in fact, the promise of the blessing is actually bookended in, in the book of Revelation. You have a promise of blessing at the beginning. You have a promise of blessing at the very end. And then you have five blessing pronouncements throughout the book of Revelation. That's a total of seven. John loves to work with the number seven again and again, which is to just simply demonstrate the fullness or completeness of something. In other words, what the book of Revelation does for us is it promises full and complete blessing. But, but, what Revelation demonstrates is that this blessing is not for those who simply master the timelines, right? Get their big banners and charts out there to figure out all the details of the book. Rather, this blessing is for those who, as the text says, who overcome. Revelation doesn't actually refer to true believers as Christians. It refers to them as overcomers. The blessing is reserved for those who overcome. So, for instance, to each of the seven churches, you're going to see this uh, repetition take place. Chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 11, The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, The one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. So again and again, what Jesus then does for the church, is says, to the one who overcomes will receive the blessing. Blessing is reserved for those who overcome. The question then that we need to think through is overcome what? What are we supposed to be overcoming? And while not everything in the book of Revelation is super clear, this one thing is unmistakably clear, namely that the dragon, right, the beast figure, who knows his time is short, has aimed all his energy now to the destruction of the church. The church is under attack. Satan knows that his time is short and he is now working with all that he has to see the church confused and destroyed. Now, Revelation, what it's going to do is it's going to give us three primary tactics that the enemy uses to bring destruction upon the church. The first method is this, physical persecution. In chapter 1, John is writing this as someone who has been exiled for his witness. He is suffering persecution. In chapter 2, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that the devil will soon imprison some for their witness. In the church of Pergamum, some have already died due to persecution. And throughout Revelation, John will then see multitudes in heaven slain for their witness. In chapter 13, there will be a beast that comes from the sea whom the dragon then empowers to expressly bring persecution upon the church. The church can just know from generation to generation to generation until Jesus returns, there will be physical persecution that the enemy will be working. It's one of his methods of attack. Now, for us in the Western context, it probably isn't the foremost like avenue of attack. But second... 
and probably more relevant to the Western context. The enemy attacks the church through spiritual compromise. For instance, the church of Ephesus. They hold to biblical truth, but they do so at the expense of their love for Christ. They have lost their first love. They got all the theology right, but they got the relationship wrong. If you'd go on, the church of Pergamum and Thyatira, they're enduring in love for Christ and in love for one another, but at the expense of permitting false doctrine, political influence, and sexual immorality into the church. So while one church is doctrinally put together, they're kind of relationally dead, while the other is relationally together, but doctrinally dead, but both have resulted in spiritual compromise. The church is weakened, her witness is confused, and so while there are more references to the spiritual compromise throughout the book of Revelation, we see it expressly evidenced again in Revelation 13. Another beast comes into the picture from the land, and what does he do? He deceives the church toward spiritual compromise. Third avenue of attack, and perhaps even more so relevant for us, is materialistic seduction. Physical persecution, one. Spiritual compromise, another. Materialistic seduction, a third. It's the lust for comfort, for security, for pleasure in this life. So the church of Sardis is known for being active and alive. But Jesus says, you are spiritually flatlined, right? And given to worldly purposes. Or the notorious, you know, the Laodicean church, who Jesus says, oh yeah, you're, you, you, you say you're rich, that you've prospered, that you've needed, you need nothing, but you're neither whole nor hot, and God is ready to spit you out of his mouth. In other words, you're so wrapped up in your worldly success, in your worldly stuff, that you're spiritually cold, lukewarm. You see, it's this desire for earthly things that will actually hinder the church from benefiting from this heavenly perspective that the revelation provides for our earthly experience. We need our eyes awakened to the tactics of the enemy. The church throughout the generations will be under attack. And therefore, all the more, we need the book of Revelation. We need to know the ways in which Satan is coming after us so that we can stand all the more firmly in Christ. That we might overcome, as the text says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Now, this then leads us to the sixth principle. Revelation is meant for a church under attack, but it's also meant to bring the church to account. In verse 3, it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Jesus uses this very idea of hearing in addressing each of the churches. He'll say again and again as he addresses the churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. It's like again and again, this repetition of calling out, hey, if you have ears, open them at this point. 
you got to listen to what's being said. But what's the point? Well, why, why, why does he keep repeating himself? Well, it's very interesting that this is a typical formula used by the prophets throughout Scripture to bring God's people to account. If you go to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, it's going to be this, this view of God's people and they've become dull in hearing and they cannot spiritually see anymore. And the reasons for their spiritual deafness right, and their spiritual blindness is because they're given to idolatry. Throughout scripture, what we see is you become like what you worship. And, and, and the illustration from the Bible is to say, just as people will worship stuff that can neither hear nor see, is true then for how it influences the person who worships that stuff. They become spiritually deaf and blind. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says, this is the condition of God's people. They can neither see rightly nor hear rightly. So what is God then say to Isaiah, it's pretty astonishing stuff, where God says, go declare to my people, if you got an ear to hear, open it up, hear. And then Isaiah is told to do all this strange stuff, right? Some of it's symbolized in visions and dreams, but other of it, it's the symbols become like a living parable. So Isaiah is told for two years, three years, to walk around naked. Right? Any of us would be like, this guy needs like mental help. Right? But God's saying, this is going to be a living apocalypsis, a living revelation, a, li a, a living symbol for what my people are about to endure if they do not repent, if they do not open up the ears that I've given them to hear. Right? The same is true of Ezekiel, the same kind of prophetic formula. God's people are deaf and dumb because they're, they're so desensitized by their idolatry. They've lost connection in some sense with God. They've lost sensitivity with God. And so Ezekiel is saying, if you have ears to hear, then open them up. Right? And then he goes through more apocalypses. God calls him, lay on your side for almost a year, bound up to demonstrate to my people just what they will experience in the judgment that's about to come should they not repent, should they not open up their ears to hear. What does Jesus say, right? A couple weeks ago, James preached, Mark chapter 4, this parable about seeds being sown. And Jesus will say, hey, if you got ears to hear, open them up. Listen in. There's truth here, and if you don't get the truth, there is judgment to come. So again and again, even Jesus will be saying these very things. What John then, therefore, is doing is he, he's bringing in that Old Testament formula, that prophetic formula, and he's doing some of the same things. He's going to be working with these symbols. He's going to be working with this apocalyptic literature. And as he's doing it, it's going to be said again and again, open up your ears to hear. Right? We must open up our ears, open up our eyes to the ways in which we've been desensitized by our own idolatry. 
We've been given to the stuff of this world, and the book of Revelation, the, prof the prophet John, is going to be bringing the church again and again to account. Not to bring some sort of condemnation upon the church, but so that the church might shine brightly for Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. Your idolatry and your lack of re like care about the Lord is actually robbing him of glory in some sense. You could be shining brightly for Jesus Christ, but instead you're being given to this worldly idolatry and therefore your eyes are blind to the reality of truth and your ears are shut to actually receiving the truth that's to be found here. We miss out on the benefit if we're not willing to be brought to account. Just to say it plainly, in our Western world, and for many who have come from similar backgrounds, from the fundamentalism, the legalism uh, that we've experienced, we, we, we've kind of swung the other way. Okay, well, I'm not supposed to feel the condemnation and the guilt. You are supposed to feel conviction, though. And so when, when you are brought to account and when you're brought to a point of decision, that's not a bad thing. That's a healthy thing. Or you'll never grow. Right? Or you'll become more and more, if we could say, anesthetized by your own subtle idolatries. And so the book of Revelation, again, is not just to wake up the church back then. It's to wake up the church now. It's to bring it to account. So as we go through the book of Revelation as a church, we should actually anticipate the fact that we will be brought to these moments of decision. A call to repentance. A call to actually identify the things that are wrong in our hearts and lives and to say, all right, I'm putting that aside for the sake of pursuing truth, pursuing my Lord. Right? If you're not good with being brought to a point of decision, then you will remain in spiritual immaturity. But even more so, and I'm just going to push as the book of Revelation pushes, you will not overcome. That's the whole point. Look, we... Here we believe in eternal security, right? Like once saved, always saved kind of thing. Because our salvation is not dependent upon our works. It's dependent upon the work of Christ. So when we become saved, it's not now, okay, I got to keep this salvation. No, Christ has kept it for us. We just get to live out of the good of it. But if you're not living out of the good of it, you're actually proving you don't have it at all. So that's the point here, right? It's like, let's let the text bring us to account as a church. Well, I don't like to be brought to decision, and, you know, I feel as though it's the old school. Well, no, like, that what's at stake here is our growth and maturity in the things of Christ. Let's be willing to be made uncomfortable for the sake of seeing Jesus formed in us as a church. This brings us to the seventh point, then. And, and just simply and briefly this, is that the revelation is meant to exalt Jesus Christ. <laughs> I 
as obvious as that might be, right? Again, verse 1, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from him, it is about him, and it is ultimately for him. To exalt something, therefore, is to raise it up to its right value, right? It's to see the value of something and therein give it its due esteem. This is what we mean when we say we are made to glorify God or to exalt Christ. It means that Christ gets his due weight of value in all that I am, in all that I think, in all that I dream about, in all that I want in this world, right? He gets kind of the, the greatest value, the greatest prominence in my life. He gets say over everything. Why? Because he is of inestimable value. And so he gets center place in my life and everything revolves around him as the earth revolves right uh, around the sun. That's exactly the idea here. We exalt Christ by making him the greatest value in our lives so that with both heaven and earth, as we see in chapter 5 particularly, we might be declaring with heaven and earth, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Oh, that his Something of his glory is felt and known through the reading of this book, through the study of this book, such that it would rightly orient our lives to be focused on the fact that Jesus is the greatest value. He is the greatest glory, and therefore it deserves all our submission. It deserves all of our attention he is the glorious one, and so the book of Revelation must bring us to the point of exalting Jesus Christ. We read once again, not to just figure out all the timelines, not to just be able to prophesy uh, in terms of what Jesus is going to do in the end according to this time frame or that time frame. It's so that we might exalt in Jesus now, right? So for instance, as we've already mentioned, we are in a strange time right now. Next week, hopefully your votes will either be in or you will have voted. But even when it comes down to those simple things, and they are just that, simple things, when it comes down to voting, vote as though Jesus is king. Right? Vote as though Jesus is king care about all the political stuff as though Jesus is king, right? Right now, we got too many Christians arguing back and forth and not evidencing the fact, oh, Jesus is my king. He's in control of all of these things. Do I still have a responsibility to vote? Yes. Do I still have a responsibility to care? Absolutely. But Jesus is king. All of heaven and earth together will erupt one day in shouting that reality and declaring, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing now and forevermore. Right? 
He is the greater weight of glory that now everything must bend its knee to. Even our goofy political circumstances here and now. Right? So, as we read the book of Revelation, let that reality be something of a rudder for us. Right? This book promises to benefit us, but it will benefit us as much as we are ready for our eyes to be cast upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, placing all our hope in him and pursuing him all the more in holiness, right? So that, as we said last week, so that we might overcome, right? So that we might overcome. Jesus is king, and through the book of Revelation, he is to be exalted. This brings us to the end. The, the seven principles for rightly reading the book of Revelation. We'll begin to get into the thick of it in the weeks ahead, but I hope that we can keep hold on, holding on to these principles, not losing, because as we jump into it, things are going to be weird at times, and we've got to remain anchored in these principles that will prove to be of benefit to us as we read this particular text so let's pray to that end god we thank you for your word we thank you that you've made it accessible holy spirit thank you that you are our teacher You are our teacher. You are not at some sort of distance from us, waiting for us to kind of get our things together before you will shine your light and illuminate this text for our benefit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're eager. <laughs> you're, you're, you're already in front of us, kind of doing the work already to prepare us to encounter the truth of this book. So, Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask that you would not only illuminate, but um, God, give us something of a sense of urgency to dive in. And as we prayed last week, God, we, we just ask that all the, the fears and confusion that surrounds this book would be set at ease. Because Spirit, ultimately, it's, it's not about how well we can grab a hold of the text. It's how well we can listen to you and benefit from how you are bringing the text to bear upon our own hearts and souls. So it brings us to a wonderful place of dependence upon you. But Holy Spirit, we claim even now the blessing of this book. Lord, show us where the enemy may be at work. Show us where he may be at work, but oh, glorify the authority of the Son against the enemy. The church will not fail. For Christ, you've overcome. And Lord, we, we do pray as well that you would bring us to account. And that we would actually be eager to be brought to account, to say, Lord, if we were named as one of the seven churches, what would it be that you would point out? What, how would you encourage us? But how would you correct us? So we invite you, Lord, to bring us to account. Encourage our hearts, but oh, 
correct us where we need to be corrected. Also that we, like Paul says, might attain to the resurrection, that we might overcome as you, Jesus, have overcome. So Lord, we ask for your help, for your direction. And I do pray even now, um, for all for all the pronounced felt needs of our hearts. God, I pray that the book of Revelation would cause you to put your finger on those particular things to show us just how in control you are, just how much of a healer (laughs) you are, just how much of of a king you are. You are unrivaled in your authority. So for all our felt needs, Lord, may it be that we are willing to bring them to you, to place them under your rule and reign, under your kingship, knowing that you're a good, a good Savior and an amazing Lord. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.